money changers there? Did he ask them politely uh, and give them lunch money and tell them that he would appreciate it if they would leave? No. He got a whip and he overturned their money tables and he drove them out of the temple. Now that's Christ's example when somebody tries to defile God's temple and the church is a spiritual organism which is the temple of God. And we have people here who are trying to destroy this part of the temple of God. They asked for a congregation of God to be dissolved. They are not members of it. You are. They're asking you to give up this congregation, remove me as pastor, and completely dissolve it, and let them take over the church property. That bottom line is what they're petitioning a judge to do. Now, I take exception to that, because this is God's church, and I believe God led us to this land and more or less gave it to us. And I will not back down. This is a fight for God and what God has done. If they think they can make me cave in by not paying the rent, they got another thing coming. Okay? Now I want to cover just a little bit of a, a different element of that in a way, uh, and that is that I've been on a couple of trips here the last month, one to Michigan and recently now one to Oregon. And because of the extortion that is going on and the withholding of rent illegally, uh, our income, of course, has dropped a great deal, and since these people left the church a year ago, it's dropped even more. So we're having to make up the difference out of our pockets, uh, the mortgage, which is over 2000 a month, and also pay a lot of legal fees, uh, which are, spent, are very spendy. So money's tighter than it was, but so far we've been able to uh, maintain, and I think that God will bless us in such a way that we can continue. Uh, on the other hand, people might say, well, if things are tight, how can Daryl make all these trips? Well, let me explain that to you. A, we had people who needed to be visited because of health issues and so on. And let me tell you how I travel. I don't have a car that gets 15 miles to the gallon, and I don't stay in motels at night, and I don't eat out. I travel differently than most people. I have a car that gets over 40 miles to the gallon, and it is a station wagon type so that I can put a bed in the back and stretch out, and I can put a big cooler beside the bed, and I can take food from home that Marla has prepared, and I can make a week trip without eating out and have good food as I do it. So when I went to Michigan, the cost for fuel was about $250, okay, for that 5,000-mile trip, round trip. $250 getting the kind of mileage I do. I did not pay for one motel room. I didn't eat out, except in a case where a member or a member's person or son uh, provided me a couple of meals and also a couple of motel rooms while I was in Michigan. So I didn't pay for any of those. And then one of the members gave me uh, $225 to help cover the cost of the trip. So out of $250 worth of fuel, I was reimbursed $225 as an additional offering to what normally that person would give. So 
net cost of the trip was 25 bucks from Michigan to here and back. Now that's not going to keep us from paying the mortgage, <laughs> okay? Not 25 bucks. And I got to anoint a couple of people and visit people who are very ill. And also uh, another who is 80 years old and blind, and, and I think she very much appreciated the visit as well. And then, uh, because of our archaeological uh, project, I needed to go to Reno, Nevada to pick up some supplies, uh, and someone else was going to pick up the cost for that. And then they gave a little extra. So while I was at it, I, I was already in Reno, which is a little over halfway there. I went on up to Oregon and got to meet with uh, a member there and a couple of other people, one of whom has now decided to come to the feast, partially, I think, as a result of that visit. And then I got to see my son for a couple of days and, uh, and then visit with uh, Dennis and Libby Schaefer, whom you know. Uh, and we had a very nice long visit. And I think they're coming to the feast. I, they were not planning to, but I think that that visit helped. Well, when it was all said and done, no motels again, no eating out. Uh, the extra money that I was given for fuel uh, to pick up the supplies covered all but $50 of the trip. So I've covered 10,000 miles in the past month, and it's cost me $75 out of pocket. That's it. $75. And made a lot of visits, and I think did some good. So, uh, you know, you can jump to conclusions when you don't have the facts. <laughs> People, you know, normally when you travel 10,000 miles, you spend a lot of money. Now, I know that the down-the-road costs are still there, like wearing out tires and oil changes and, and so on and so forth, but I'm just saying out-of-pocket, uh, Michigan and Oregon for $75. Try that sometime. I just wanted to go over that a little bit because sometimes people get wrong impressions and they don't realize what's really going on. So that's enough sermon at time. So let's get back into Second Peter, which was the aim and purpose of the day. Uh, we came down to chapter 3. And this chapter is very interesting because... It brings up a lot of history, a lot of prophecy, and it also is very encouraging. It also contains a warning. So it is a very hopeful chapter, actually, which is the, probably the biggest overall theme of Peter's writings. So let's pick it up in chapter 3, Second Peter. The second epistle, epistle, beloved, I now write to you. We just went through First Peter. In both, which I stir up your pure minds by way of remembrance. Now, by nature, we do not have pure minds. Well, yeah, I guess we do. Pure filth. Uh, but <laughs> uh, what is a pure mind? It is one that is influenced by the Spirit of God rather than human nature and Satan. So, he's stirring, he's attempting here to stir up <laughs> what they have been taught in the past about God and about Christ and about the church and about the apostles. Uh, you've heard these things. He says, now I want you to remember them. And he's going to put it in a way that is very interesting. 
that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets. <clears throat> so he says, now what I'm about to say is I'm going to repeat, I'm going to go over what the holy prophet said in the past. So what, part of what he is about to cover here in chapter 3 is going to be quotes from the prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and so on. So keep that in mind, because as we get into this, we're going to see how the mind of God works, how specific and how precise God is with his prophecies, and it's going to show us somewhat, I believe, where we are right now today. So that's the first thing he says there, is we're going to consider the things that the prophets wrote. Okay, This isn't something that Peter just heard from Christ, not something he dreamed up, but something that the prophet said. And then he says, <clears throat> uh, the things spoken before by the holy prophets and of the commandment of us, the apostles of the eternal and Savior. Now here he says, the things that the apostles write are commandments. They're things that are to be followed and done. Now for any who might not believe in government, does that sound like the prophets, I mean, the apostles were in charge, where they were giving commands. <laughs> that pretty clearly indicates uh, authority there. That's all through the Bible. People overlook that. Anyway, <clears throat> so here are things that he's going to say that both the prophets and the apostles had told them in the past. But he wants them reminded, and he wants them to further and have a greater knowledge, further their knowledge, and have a greater understanding of what was going on and will be going on. So then he says, Knowing this first, that there shall come in the last days scoffers walking after their own lusts. So he says, I'm about to tell you something very important here, but I want you to understand ahead of time that in the last days there will come those who will not believe these things, will not understand, and will deny them. Okay? Scoffers walking after their own lusts, their own desires, their own vanities, their own covetousness, uh, here in the last days. I think we could draw that down a little bit, even to our own situation. We have those who are beginning to scoff uh, at some of the things I've taught, and scoff our uh, resolve to do things God's way and think that they can do a better job, so they should take over. Uh, well, I think Peter is talking about that kind of attitude. And it's not just here, it's throughout the splintered church of God and what's left of it. <clears throat> and here's one of the things that they'll say. Where is the promise of his coming? Now he said he'd come, and where is he? <laughs> well, it's gone on and on and on. And we've had that within the church of God here at the end. Uh, it began to be speculated based on a faulty understanding of 19-year time cycles, at least partially faulty. There is no such thing as an exact 19-year time, time cycle due to uh, the situation with a 365 and a quarter day year and so on. Uh, so there is not such a thing, but it's close. 
But anyway, there were some events that happened in Worldwide Church of God that happened about every 19 years that were significant. So there may be something to the general idea of those cycles, and I think that they told us something. But one thing they told us uh, was not right. One thing they led us to believe was that Christ was going to return, or that the tribulation would start in 72, and that Christ would return in 75. Hence, we had the booklet 1975 in Prophecy, predicting Christ to return then. That's been, uh, let's see, 25... Uh, 41 years ago. <laughs> and he ain't here yet. So a lot of people got discouraged. They got frustrated. Uh, some quit. And others began to doubt Herbert Armstrong and so on. And doubt even the truths of God. So they began to scoff. And they began to malign. They even wrote books putting him down and so on. But now looking back in retrospect, I think I can understand that the man did everything God intended him to do. God, in the southwest part of Ephraim, caused him to do a calling work that led to the repentance and conversion of people around the world. He, there was a great calling. And then it was spewed out because of our Laodiceanism, and now out of that spewing, God is about to begin to call a few not call, but to uh, choose a few, 10%. We've seen those scriptures. So Herbert Armstrong finished his job, but the end didn't come. Christ didn't return in 75. Some of us began to smell a rat on that back in the late 60s and say, you know, there are many things in the Bible that haven't occurred yet that have to occur before Christ returns, and it doesn't look like the tribulation can start by 72 or that Christ can return by 75. And like there are people now, even out in the world, Jonathan Kahn, the, the, the guy, the Jew who's talked about the Twin Towers and the Almond Tree and or whatever, and all that stuff, and expecting Christ to return right away. No. Uh, there are still many, many things that he doesn't understand in the prophecies of the Bible that have to occur. And it's going to take a number of years for those things to occur before Christ can return. That's all there is to it. They have to happen because they're written. But people will scoff. So, where is this promise of His coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. People say, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, they wrote all these prophecies, Christ came, and this thing just goes on and on and on. So, can you depend on God? What's God doing? Is his word any good? He was supposed to come then. Then he was supposed to come then. And somebody else says he's coming then. Can you rely on God's word? Does he mean what he says? He says people will not believe that. <clears throat> They'll say everything's been just like it was. Verse 5. Now he's going to begin to explain here. For this they willingly are ignorant of that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth, says in my King James, standing out of the water and in the water, but uh, the Greek uses the word consisting instead of standing. Now let's read it that way. They're ignorant that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth consisting 
uh, out of the water and in the water. Now, that's a quote from Genesis 1. Let's go back there for a moment. Because there's a definite time of the creation mentioned here in Genesis 1. And we're going to, I think, understand when that was before we're done today. Here, Herbert Armstrong got this right. Uh, in the Hebrew, it better reads, In a beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. Not the beginning, because the heavens and the earth uh, have been here for a long, 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 long time. And he explains here what he did. In a beginning, a starting over, if you will, the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. We'll see a little later on that there was no land showing. There was darkness over the deep, the sea. And uh, there was no form and void, and it was void. Well, what gives form? Do the seas give form? No, it's land that gives form. When you look at a map, you don't look at the sea and say the sea forms the face of the earth. No, you look at the land and say the land forms, or what form the earth, the continents. That's what he's explaining here. Going down to verse 9, to confirm that, he says, And God said, Let the waters under the heaven be gathered together to one place, and let the dry land appear. So there was no dry land. And he said, Let it all be, the, 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 the waters be gathered into one body, one place. So what he was saying here is when the land appeared, the water was all one body. And there was one piece of land. Now, we read later on that the earth was divided in the days of Peleg. Now, that's talking of a physical division of the continents from that one piece that originated into the continents that we know today. And the continental shelves fit together better even than the coastlines do. So, the, the people were divided in the days of Nimrod and the Tower of Babel by the confusion of languages, people scattered from each other. So he's not talking here <coughs> in the days of Peleg that the earth was divided. He's not talking about people being scattered. He's talking about the land being moved. People were scattered at Babel. So here we have one continent and the sea all in one place. Today you have inland seas that... Uh, some of them don't even have an outlet, and some of them have a very narrow outlet into the larger oceans, like the Mediterranean and the Black Sea and so on. The Gulf of Aqaba, for instance. So, that's what occurred. Now, that's what Peter is saying here. There was a definite time of a new beginning. Okay? Let's see if we can understand when that was as we go along. There have been a lot of arguments about when that beginning or that creation started. Uh, a lot of people think around uh, 425 to 428 B.C. The Jews think it's uh, 3760 or 61 B.C., I think. Uh, different people have different dates. And uh, I know one who has been prominent in working on the calendar and various, various other things in the Church of God who says we're past 7,000 years. 
because creation was whatever number he picked, 4,016 or 20 or whatever it was that he picked. She says, we've gone beyond 6,000 years and the millennium is not here, so the idea of a 7,000 year plan, which we feel the peace uh, picture, was not true. Now, is he right or is he wrong? Frank Nelty is the one that you can read his papers. He says, we're beyond 6,000 years since the creation, and therefore we can't use the 7,000 year plan anymore. Stated it emphatically. So then he says that the, that back to Second Peter 3 here, they're willingly ignorant that God gave commands and the heavens, uh, the earth was only consisted of water and the land was in the water. It was under the water, as we saw up in Genesis 1, uh, 2. So he commanded and the earth came out of the water and there was dry land and on that he could put uh, creatures, beasts, man, birds, and so on. So that was a recreation, if you will, or a new beginning of a world that was older than that. And that resolves an issue between science and so-called creationists. Uh, the earth has been here no telling how long, and there may have been all kinds of life forms, even perhaps humanoids, which were similar to humans, but not quite, and similar to God, but not quite and didn't have quite the mentality that God gave us and the spirit in man that God gave us. There's room for all of that. If you say that there was something that was here, could have been millions, could have been billions of years. And God had destroyed that because of Satan's rebellion. And then at a point, he decided, I'm going to bring the land back up. And that's why he got fossils 12,000 feet in the air. They, you know, they have been with nothing but seashells and sea life possibly for hundreds of millions of years. Who knows? Uh, the scientists could be right about some of that stuff. But this recreation began at a certain point. Now let's continue and we'll see that. So that world that had over, been overflowed perished. Or it perished by being overflowed. But the heavens and the earth which are now. So what we have today with the earth the sky, those things that he was dealing with in the day that he walked the earth, and those things are constant. We still have the sun coming up, and the sun going down, and the moon doing its cycles, just as they did in Peter's day, okay? The, these things which are now, he says, by the same word, God's word, the prophet's words, what the apostles preached, are kept in store. That is, waiting in storage, waiting to happen. Reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. So he says, these things that God has written about are going to be changed. And they're going to be changed at the time that God begins the judgment and perdition or destruction of ungodly men. Now, he's done that in the past, in Noah's day. He did it to Sodom and Gomorrah. There are times when God has created destruction. Uh, he did the same type of destruction at the Tower of Babel again by 
confusing and scattering mankind over the face of the earth. Now he says that is coming again. Now this is a very important statement. Verse 8, But, beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing. Now here is a very important main point, he's saying. He says these things are being held in store, but don't be ignorant of one thing. Can I emphasize that enough here? This one thing is important. That one day is with the eternal as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. Now, wasn't that from, I think, Numbers 14.34, where it says that? Let me look thumb back there. Because he's, he's quoting the past, and Moses was a prophet. He says, I'm quoting the prophets. Numbers 14, is that the one? After the number of the days in which you search the land, even forty days, each day for a year, you shall bear your iniquity. So he says there that a day is equal to a year. And here he says, there is a place I think that says that. That's not the exact one. But he says here that a thousand years is as a day. I may have that in my margin. Uh, I've got Psalm 90, verse 4. That may be the one I'm thinking about. Let me look for a moment. And if it isn't, it doesn't matter because Peter's stating it. <clears throat> For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past and as a watch in the night. So a thousand years is like one day, yesterday, he says. So that confirms that from the prophet David. Or 40 years can represent one day. So God uses that kind of symbolism. Now this is an important point, Peter's saying. It'll give us a lot of understanding if we believe Peter when he says this. God is a very precise God. He does things on time. He does them when he says he will do them. His word cannot be broken. So when God says something, he means it. Then he says, The eternal is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness. Now he says, some are going to scoff and say it isn't coming. Things are just the same. This is all a, this is all a crock uh, about Christ returning and when he'll return and all that. Now, he said up here that one day is as a thousand years. Let's think about that a moment and consider it. Let's consider it in terms of uh, the Jubilee. Every 50 years, land was released back to the family that had originally been given, it had been given to by Joshua when they entered into the land. Ownership was vested in certain uh, families. Now, somebody's trying to tell me that uh, they have to have a deed because uh, I guess God required Jeremiah to have a deed on the property when he bought it in Anatoth there in Jeremiah. So therefore, I should give them a deed. Now, that's a very shallow and un non-understanding view of the scriptures. Actually, uh, the only ones who had deeds when they went into the land were the families to whom certain areas were assigned. Okay, now they were given ownership deeds to that land. Those families. 
They could not sell that land. It had to remain in that family forever. Now, God did say that you can lease it out for 49 years. But in the 50th year, it goes back to the family that originally owned it. Okay? So, if if your family had the Jones tract... Every 50 years, even if you leased it out for 49 years or the Jubilee was coming, you leased it out for the last five years, it would go back to your, the original Jones family. Now, God did that so that if people acted foolishly and uh, got, got rid of their land, leased it out, went bankrupt, whatever, They could lease it out and receive money, but it would come back to that family on the Jubilee. Therefore, those members of the family who existed at that time, that generation, could get a new start in spite of the foolishness of their fathers. Now, what was explained there in Jeremiah was that Jeremiah's uncle was the one that owned the land that Jeremiah was to buy. Now, if his uncle owned it, that means that his uncle, his family, were the ones who had originally owned it. And that the uncle, or someone else in the family, had apparently leased it out. So what God was telling Jeremiah was, you come up with the money and you redeem that land because it is yours by right of birth because it was part of the land originally given to your family. So, Jeremiah's uncle, or ultimately Jeremiah, were the ones who would receive that land back in the Jubilee regardless. But God wanted that land to go back to Jeremiah then, because he wanted to use it for his purposes of prophecy. So when he told Jeremiah, you go buy that land, Jeremiah could buy it or could pay off the lease and receive it back because he was the family of the original owners of that particular land. So the only way he could get a deed was because of family, and no one else could get a deed unless they were in his family. He says, it's yours right, it's your right by inheritance. Therefore, it was in the family line of Jeremiah from the time of Joshua down to that day. So when somebody says, well, in Jeremiah, Jeremiah got a deed. Well, they didn't understand how land was handled in those days that had been set up by God. So that doesn't put me under any onus to give anybody any land today. That system is not in effect, actually, right now. Uh, We're trying to get as close to it as we can. Anyway, uh, that's kind of a side issue. But at the same time, God had a 50-year jubilee plan. Every 50 years, liberty was declared and you got your land back. Now, when Peter says that a thousand years is as a day, we have to understand that in the context of the Bible. Let's go back to Hebrews, first of all, and see what uh, Paul has to say. Hebrews 4. This will all come together here in a little bit, but I want to establish some principles. 
chapter 4, he's speaking of Christ here, and he says, Let us therefore fear, lest the promise being left us, left us of entering into his rest, and of any you should seem to come short of it. Now, what promise has been made to us in entering into what rest? As New Testament Christians, we are resurrected just prior to the beginning of the millennium. So the millennium is the rest that is promised to us when we'll have no fear, no sorrow, no crying, no pain, and so on. <clears throat> so the overall subject here has to be the millennium. That is the time God has promised us rest and not before. But the patriarchs of old couldn't enter that until Christ returns and the 144,000 first fruits, fruits are resurrected. So he says, For unto us was the gospel preached, as well as to them, those in the past and us, he says. But the word preached did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in them that heard it. Uh, the truth has been preached here in the end time, but many have not had faith mixed with that truth to truly believe, and therefore they turned away. As I have sworn in my wrath, if they shall enter into my rest, although the works were finished from the foundations of the world. <coughs> He's saying here that there is a time when they will enter into the millennial rest, even though the works were finished from the foundation of the world. From Genesis 1.1. So he says Genesis 1.1 is important to the understanding of the rest that we are to enter into. Now, Herbert Armstrong understood that the first 6,000 years of man's existence on this earth were represented by the first six days of the week, a day being as a thousand years. So God says, from the beginning, from that creation, there will be 6,000 years, and then we will enter the millennial rest. A day is as a thousand years. Now, is God lying to us? Is a day as 1,036 years or 937 years? Or is it as 1,000 years? Now, that's just a plain statement made by God, okay? <clears throat> for he spoke in a certain place, verse 4 of Hebrews 4, of the seventh day on this wise. He mentions the seventh day created right there at the time of the recreation, right, in Genesis? And God did rest the seventh day from all his works. So he's saying the weekly Sabbath, God rested from his works of the recreation there. And in this place, again, if they shall enter into my rest, seeing therefore it remains that some must enter therein, and they to whom it was first preached entered not in because of unbelief. Now, could they keep the Sabbath? Yes. But did they enter into the millennial Sabbath? No. They didn't believe. That started with Adam and Eve. They could have continued living their physical life had they not sinned until the time of the, the end of 6,000 years and gone into the millennium. But they didn't last a day. <laughs> they didn't last at all. So they didn't enter into that rest. Well, they're resting in their grave, but they're not resting in the millennium. Verse 7, again, he limits a certain day. God limits this, 
This is a limited time, a specific time, if you will. Uh, now I lost where I was reading. Uh, verse 7. Saying in David, Today, after so long a time, as it is said, Today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your hearts. For if a man had given them rest, then would he not afterward have spoken of another day? Well, Christ didn't come to set up the millennium. He didn't come to set up a millennial rest. He spoke of another day to come. Okay? Keep that in mind. He spoke of another day to come. And I'm going to show you where it is and when it is in a little bit. There therefore remains a rest to the people of God. It hasn't come yet. We keep the weekly Sabbath as a type or a symbol of that millennial rest that is to come. For he that entered into his rest, he also has ceased from his own works, as God did from his. So we're supposed to cease from our human carnal life and begin to rest in the laws of God. into that rest, lest any man fall after the same example of unbelief. So we are to be, today, working toward entering that millennium, millennial rest in faith that it will come. Belief that it's going to happen. For the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit, the joints and marrow, marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. So he's saying we ought to be working toward entering into the rest of God that is coming to his people. Now what... Paul is saying here <coughs> became a part of the Word of God. What Peter wrote is part of the Word of God. And we need to pay attention. So, uh, we can see <coughs> there in Hebrews 4 that the Sabbath, the seventh day of the week, pictures a thousand years. And the holy days do depict six thousand years of man's labor on this earth and a thousand years of millennial rest which is to come. That's pictured by the week. Now that's why it's so important we not keep Sunday or Wednesday or Friday, but the Sabbath. It is a sign between God and His people because it pictures the seventh thousand year period. Wednesday doesn't. Sunday doesn't. The Sabbath does. It is, people say, well you can just set aside any day you want. No. It's the seventh day that carries the meaning and the type and the future with it. Now, can we know when creation occurred? Let's look at some things. And I think that it is quite possible that we can. Because, he says, a thousand days is as a year. Now, God means what he says. The word of God is quick, it's powerful, it means what it says, okay? It doesn't talk in wishy-washy, nebulous terms. It's specific. Now, if you go back to Ezekiel 1 and Ezekiel 40, which I have done before, uh, and compare those, you'll find that he speaks of the 30th year. Let me, uh, let me go back there. This is, this is a little technical. It's not too bad, uh, but I think we can understand it. Let's go to, uh, to uh, Ezekiel 1, verse 1. 
<coughs> because this is this lays the groundwork for where we're headed. <coughs> now, Ezekiel states when something happened here. It came to pass in the thirtieth year, in the fourth month, by the fifth day of the month, as I was among the captives by the river of Kibar, that the heavens were open in the vision of God. And this was in the fifth day of the month, which was the fifth year of King Jehoiakim's captivity. Now, what he is speaking of here, they numbered the years according to the Jubilee cycle. So this was the 30th year of the Jubilee cycle, but uh, the captivity had occurred five years prior to this. So the 20th, 25th year of the Jubilee cycle is when the captivity started, okay? 25th year. This was now the 30th year. Now let's go to Ezekiel 40 with that in mind. Ezekiel 40. In the five and twentieth year of our captivity. So the thirtieth year, they have been in captivity five years. So this is the twenty-fifth year of the captivity. So from the thirtieth year, they'd already been in five years. So this would be twenty years after the thirtieth year. Do you follow me? Thirtieth uh, year, they've been in captivity for five years. And this is 25 years after they've gone into captivity. So you subtract 5 from the 25 that had already occurred when the 30th year was. And that 30 plus the 20 that's been since the 30th year equals 50. So you take the 30th year here, add 50 to it, and you have the Jubilee. Okay? 50th year. Now, scholars tell us that based on their chronologies, this happened in 574 B.C. was the 30th year of the captivity. No, that the, uh, yeah. No, the 50. Oh, okay, you take the 30th year, add 50 to it, and they say that that's 574 B.C. Now, if you add to minus 574, 12 Jubilee cycles, that's 600 years, you come to a plus 26. Minus 574 plus 600 is 26. Plus 26. That gives you 26 AD, right? Then if you add one year, which you have to do to go from BC to AD, uh, because there's no year zero, you come to 27 AD. So I think that the scholars are correct that 574 was the 50th year, and they base that on uh, Ezekiel, what Ezekiel says here about the 30th year and when, where they were in the captivity. So, if 574 B.C. is the Jubilee, or the 50th year of the cycle, then you add six to it, plus one, 600 to it, plus one year B.C. to A.D., you come to 27 A.D., Okay? Now, let's consider Christ, and this is, that's background in Ezekiel. Uh, Christ uh, and his ministry, I think, are very, very important. So let's go to Luke 4 for that and understand what Christ is saying. Now, in Luke 4, the setting is that Christ is tempted of Satan in the first part of the chapter. And after that temptation, see, he qualified there 
to supplant Satan as the ruler of this earth. He hasn't come and taken over yet, but he is qualified, and Satan will be deposed shortly. And then he came to Nazareth in verse 16, and he began his ministry. So he went to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. Now this is the time that his ministry began in 27 A.D., right after the temptation. Now, where did he go that day to read? There was delivered to him the book of the prophet Isaiah, and when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Eternal is upon me, because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor, quoting from Isaiah 61, 3 and 2, or 1 and 2, uh, he has sent me to heal the brokenhearted. Uh, are these things that he did? He preached the gospel. He healed the brokenhearted. To preach deliverance to the captive. In other words, to give them hope for the future. And recovering of sight to the blind, which he did in his earthly ministry. This is when he began it. To set at liberty them that are bruised. Now, they'd been bruised by the Romans. They'd been bruised by the Jews. They'd been bruised by life. And he gave them hope for the future, even then. But notice verse 19. To preach the acceptable year of the eternal. Now, when... Now, so what he did, when he's in his physical ministry, when he healed and helped and uh, delivered people was a type of what he will do when he returns to the whole earth. He'll heal the sick, make the blind see, the lame to walk, and so on. And there will be peace and contentment in that millennial period. So what he did on earth was give us a show or a type of what would come to the whole earth later on. And on this particular day, he read from Isaiah on purpose to preach the acceptable year of the eternal. Now, what year will God accept as the time in the future that the people will be set at liberty and healing will occur around the earth? The beginning of the millennium. So he's speaking here of the jubilee year. There will be a jubilee at the beginning of the millennium. Because that is the time in the future, the beginning of the seventh thousand year period, when God will bring peace and contentment and happiness and healing to the world. Okay? Now, since God is precise... And Christ was declaring 27 A.D., the beginning of his ministry, as a jubilee. The time that he returns and begins the liberty and healing and so on will also be a jubilee. Now, if there are 6,000 years of man's and Satan's experience before that begins... There have been almost 2,000 years since 27 A.D. 
2,000 years from that, that declaration of that year as a jubilee will be six, uh, will be 2,000 years. That's when uh, the millennium has to begin because there were 4,000 years before this year of jubilee that he declared in 27 A.D. Now, scholars have tried to figure out when the creation of Adam and Eve was, and they come up with all kinds of different ideas. Uh, some say prior to 4,000 B.C., the Jews say 37, 60, or 61, depending on whether you count the, the year uh, of B.C. to A.D., was when this creation occurred. Now, let's just get simple here and take God's Word for what it actually says. That there will be 6,000 years, that's six days, pictured by man, and seventh is the rest year of God. The seventh thousand years is Paul explained very clearly in Hebrews. So we're nearing 2,000 years since Christ was here. So that means there had to be 4,000 years prior to what he spoke in chapter, or in uh, uh, Luke 4 and 27 AD. Follow me? There have been roughly 4,000 years. Scholars recognize that. The Jews recognize that. They just can't come up with a date. Okay? Can we? I think all you got to do is count backward. God is precise. A day is as, as a thousand years. So you count back 4,000 years from 27 A.D. and you come up with 3973 B.C. The Jews are about 200 years from that, 3760 B.C. But God is precise. Now, if he said, Christ said, 27 A.D. represented the year of liberty. It was a jubilee year. Count back 4,000. you got your jubilees in order. <clears throat> Precisely a day as a thousand years. Not sort of, not close. And Frank was wrong. We haven't been over 6,000 years because the Scripture, I think, is telling us here that a day is as a thousand years and the Scripture cannot be broken, John 6.35. And God's Word is powerful, and it is precise. So if you count back 4,000 years from 27, you get 3973. There's four days. Now, man was to have six days. So if you count forward from 27, 50-year increments, the jubilee that is next ahead of us would be 2027. A.D. 27 plus 2,000 years is 2027 A.D., which would be a total of 6,000 years, and it's time for the acceptable day of the Lord to begin the millennium. 6,000 years after creation, 2,000 years after Christ proclaimed the acceptable day of the Lord. So is creation... 3973 B.C.? I think in all likelihood that is the case because it fits what Peter is saying. 
Now, doesn't he take us back to Genesis 1-1? Yes, he does. He goes right back to this creation of Adam and Eve to explain what he's talking about. Now, what is his subject here? He has said that the word of God is precise and the people will not believe what the Bible says and they will scoff. Well, we need to believe what the Bible says and not scoff. So what Peter is telling us is that God set it up from day one in Genesis 1-1 to last until 6,000 years was finished and then we would have the rest of God. And Paul echoes that in Hebrews 4. So he's saying the Bible is precise. And if you accept from God's Word that a day is as a thousand years, then that establishes from 27 A.D., 4,000 years past, and 2,000 years future. I think we now know, based on that, the creation was 3973 B.C. The Jews are wrong by about 200 years. And that the beginning of the millennium is scheduled for 2027 A.D., now, that gives us time between now and then to build the temple, to build Jerusalem, the tribulation to occur, and the day of the Lord, which comes immediately after the tribulation. Tribulation is three and a half years, and the day of the Lord begins immediately thereafter. Now, you can see that in Matthew 24 and verse 29. Here he's talking about this terrible time in Matthew 24, when the church has had to flee and our flight lasts, our time of safety, 1260 days, as mentioned in Revelation 12, or three and a half years, or time, times, and half a time, which is three and a half years. The two witnesses speak for 42 months, or three and a half years. So it's a speaking of the time when the church is in safety, the witnesses are preaching. Three and a half years exactly meaning we have a 360-day year again, the heavens will be corrected. But notice verse 29. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, right after the tribulation, immediately. So the tribulation occurs, and then immediately, and people think that the tribulation is the day of the Lord. No, it's not. Here it says, immediately after the tribulation shall the sun be darkened, and the moon shall not give her light, Stars shall fall from the heaven, and the powers of the heavens shall be shaken. The sign of the Son of Man will then appear. So, the day of the Lord, spoken of by Joel, by Isaiah, by all the prophets, a day is as a year, or a day is as a thousand years. So, the day of the Lord is a year of time, and it begins immediately after the three and a half years of tribulation. Now, the end of the tribulation is when the witnesses are raised, the dead in Christ are raised, uh, we go with Christ to the Father's throne, pictured by the Day of Atonement, to be married to Christ. And Deuteronomy 24 tells us that we're to have a year with Him of honeymoon before we return with Him to put down in a final battle those who are left on the earth. He'll come at that time with his vesture dipped in blood and all his saints with him. We will have been with him for a year of honeymoon 
come back with him to finish subduing the earth and set up the millennium. So he returns at the end of the tribulation, takes us, marries us in the day of the Lord, which consists of the seven last plagues, the day of darkness and trouble and so on, as Matthew twenty-four twenty-nine says. Now let's go on and see what Peter says about that. Verse 9, his whole point is, the eternal is not slack concerning his promise. As some men count slackness, but this thing's going to be on time. That's what he's trying to get across. If you understand these scriptures and these prophecies, then you're going to know. Okay? That's what he's telling us. You're going to know. You don't have to guess. You don't have to get uh, all frustrated and impatient. He's telling us it's 6,000 years total. A day is, again, is not as 1,036 years or 943. It's 1,000 years. So he's not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish. He doesn't want any of us to get impatient and slack off. He said in Matthew 24, those that endure to the end shall be saved, not those who lose faith and give up thinking, oh, this thing's not going to happen. We've had it happen right here. To people that heard what I preached about the end time and the, the gathering and the 10% and the two witnesses and so on, and it didn't happen as quickly as they thought it should, and some of them gave up. And he tells us don't do that. And he's giving us the information here to tell us when all of this is going to occur so that we won't get impatient and give up. We know when it's going to happen. After 6,000 years exactly. There's one caveat to that, and that is Christ said, unless time is cut short, no flesh will be saved alive. Now, is World War III going to destroy all flesh? No. Is the Great Tribulation going to destroy all flesh? No. When will the earth be in danger of all flesh being destroyed? During the seven last plagues. During our honeymoon with Christ that lasts a year. The day of the Lord is a year. Now, he says that the seven last plagues are going to be so horrific that if that full year was extended out to its completion, no flesh would be saved alive, so it will be cut short. That's the only thing that could be cut short when man is about to be annihilated. The seven last plagues are the first time that that could occur. So that's what has to be cut short. Now, that doesn't do damage to the millennium because we will have been with Christ almost a year and he will return perhaps a little early. Doesn't say. We don't know the day or the hour. Doesn't say we don't know the year. Does it? I think Peter is telling us we can know the year. Exactly 6,000 years. Cut short by a month or two, a week or two, a day or two, hours, it doesn't say. 
We cannot know the day or the hour. But I think Peter is telling us we can know the year, so don't be discouraged. Exactly 6,000 years. Minus whatever time he cuts that honeymoon short and the seven last plagues the day of the Lord short. Now this is about the time I usually quit, but remember we had a sermon at today. And I'm not finished. So just live with it. Or hang up. <laughs> or go away. Or if you can sit a little while, we'll finish this. At least I think we will. <clears throat> now let's go on and see if what I'm saying is uh, confirmed by Peter. He's not willing any of us should perish, but all should come to repentance. So he says, I want you to know how things are so you don't give up. But the day of the Lord, spoken of in Matthew twenty four twenty nine, spoken of in Joel all the way through and other places, will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. Now, people say that this is speaking of a time when the earth is going to be completely charred to a cinder and completely rebuilt. That's not true. Now, the day of the Lord is a time when the earth and the sun and the moon are going to shake and quiver in their, uh, in their orbits. Uh, there will be great fire. There will be great pressure. <clears throat> but all men will not die. Now, he's quoting from Isaiah 24 here. Ellen G. White, the Seventh-day Adventist, quoted um, Isaiah 24 and had a desolate earth theory that all mankind would be destroyed and that the earth would be completely burned up. Herbert Armstrong may have gotten that from Ellen G. I don't know where he got it all. He may have gotten it from this, not understanding all of this. But Ellen G. in Isaiah 24, and we've been there before, so I'm not going there for sake of time, Missed a few verses. It says the earth and mankind will be destroyed and few men left. She left that out of her quotation. Now, I will turn to Isaiah 66. Because here, he speaks of the new heavens and the new earth, which Peter is about to address. Well, let's, uh, let's wait to go there until we get down to that. So, Peter is quoting Isaiah 65. He's quoting Isaiah 24 in this great conflagration that is going to occur during the day of the Lord. But few men will be left. Not everybody burned up. Seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, melted, uh, be a lot of destruction, what manner of persons ought you to be in all holy conduct and godliness, realizing that right at the end of 6,000 years, we're going to have a great tribulation, we're going to have the day of the Lord, and there's going to be great destruction, and not many people left. How should we be living? <laughs> should we be pursuing God with all our heart who can save us, or should we not? Verse 12, Looking for and hasting to the coming of the day of God wherein the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. Again, he's repeating what he said in verse 10 and he's quoting it from Isaiah 24 again. 
Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth. Now, is he saying here that it will all be destroyed and the earth completely recreated? And that we see a brand new heaven and a new earth wherein dwells righteousness? Is that what Peter's saying? Let's go now back to Isaiah 65 and 66. And to see what it says about the new heavens and the new earth. Verse 17 of Isaiah 65. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former shall not be remembered nor come into mind. Everything that was polluted down here and destroyed. Now, he talks in verse 18 about this new heavens and new earth having a people that are joyful. And then he talks about not being an infant of days, a man will die a hundred years, not seventy. But the sinner, being a hundred years old, will be accursed. Now, it says they'll build houses and inhabit them. It talks about, uh, verse 23, they are the seed of the blessed of the eternal and their offspring with them. Babies being born, human beings being on the earth, in the new heaven and in the new earth. Still be people. Read it in chapter 66, verse 22. For as the new heavens and the new earth, which I will make, shall remain before me, he'll be there in the new heavens and the new earth, so shall your seed and your name remain, and it'll come to pass that from one new moon and one Sabbath to another shall all flesh come to worship before me, says the Eternal. There will still be flesh, people, during the new heavens and new earth. Now, worldwide taught that Christ would return and that the, during the day of the Lord, the whole earth would be burned up, there would be a new creation, and then the Father would come down. That's not what the Bible says. There's still people around during the new heavens and the new earth. We'll see that again in a moment uh, in Revelation 21 and 22. Uh, well, let's go there now, since we're right there on verse 13. Revelation 21. I saw a new heaven and a new earth. Okay? Here it is. The first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. And I, John, saw the holy city coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride. So Christ and the bride coming down. And he says that for those people, the 144,000, he'll wipe away all tears from their eyes and so on. Uh, I make all things new. Verse 5. Does that mean he recreates the whole orb, the planet, all over again? No, we'll see that in a moment. But there are still, when the new heavens and the new earth come down, Verse 8, the fearful and unbelieving, the abominable and murderers and whoremongers and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars shall have their part in the lake of which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Now that doesn't occur till after the millennium and the great white throne judgment. And here we have the new heavens and the new earth already come down and you still have unbelievers around and sinners, people. When Christ is here during the millennium, what does he say? Everybody will come up to keep the peace, and if you don't, uh, you won't get any rain. The new heavens and the new earth are at the beginning of the millennium. That's when they come down. 
Same context, verse 9. There came to me one of the seven angels which had the seven vials of the seven last plagues. So here's one of the angels who had overseen the seven last plagues, which had just ended at this point. And he said, all right, here's what comes next. Come here, I'll show you the bride, the Lamb's wife. And he showed heavenly Jerusalem coming down from heaven and describes the city and so on. Verse 22, And I saw no temple therein, for the Lord God Almighty and the temple are, and the Lamb are the temple. So the new heavens and new earth don't need a temple because the Father and the Son are it. No need of the Son and so on. This is the new heavens and new earth. And you have people, nations, still walking before them. In verse 27, There shall in no wise enter into it anything that defiles, neither whatsoever works abomination or makes a lie, but they which are written in the Lamb's book of life. That means that there will still be people around who are still sinning, but the only ones that can come into this are the 144,000 and the Father and the Son. Now, is this at a time when the earth has been completely remade and everything is clean and pure and, no, and man no longer exists like worldwide used to teach? Go on to verse chapter 22. Out of the throne of God, inhabited by the Father and the Son, the new heaven and the new earth, verse 1 of chapter 21, we still have something phenomenal here. Chapter 22, He showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding out of the throne of God and the Lamb. So they're there. Their thrones are there. The new heavens and new earth are there. And what else is there? In the midst of the street of it, and on either side of the river, was the tree of life, which bore twelve manner of fruits and yielded their fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. When the new heavens and new earth come, the Father and Son are ruling on the earth. Out of their throne will come a river that is there to heal the nations. They haven't all been healed when the new heavens and the new earth come, have they? There are still people who need healed. So this is prior to the third resurrection. The new heavens and new earth are already here when the nations still need healed. That is at the beginning of the millennium when the healing occurs. The time of liberty, when the deaf hear and the lame walk and the blind see and liberty is, is uh, declared on the earth. The seventh year the millennium, the rest of God, when the Father and the Son will rule the earth in peace and waters will go out to heal. That's the word of God will go out, maybe literally, but the word of God or the words of life and healing will go to the whole world to heal it at the beginning of the millennium in the new heavens and the new earth. That's when the change comes. The destruction of our society and everything and the seven last plagues occurs during the year after the tribulation, immediately afterward, when we're on honeymoon. The end of the honeymoon, cut a little bit short, Christ brings us down with him uh, to put down the rest of the rebellion. Then we go back with him to the Father's throne 
and the new heavens and new earth with the Father and the Son and the Bride come down to rule the earth and the millennium itself begins. Now it may be exact 6,000 years because Christ comes and takes us up we get married we're there nearly a year the day of the Lord is cut short so that some flesh will be saved alive a hundred million Daniel 6 I think it is will still be alive now then we go we come down with him to do the final battle his vesture dipped in blood then we go back to the throne of God to organize and to come down to begin the millennium. Well, how long will we be up there? It doesn't say exactly when we'll come back, does it? Now, if he cut it short by three days or three hours or three months, we may stay up there that amount of time that it was cut short. Three hours, three days, three months. Less than a year and come back precisely after 6,000 years to set up the millennium and declare the jubilee maybe on the Day of Atonement 6,000 years later. Then it would be precise. He cut it short. Then we go back and wait till the 6,000th year is finished and come back that day I think Peter's telling us that there will be 6,000 years precisely and then liberty will be proclaimed for a thousand years with the father and son ruling on the earth so there is no delay you can't say well it's all delayed and nothing's happening we might as well get discouraged and give up the faith no Peter's saying you can know you can know. I believe that from 27 A.D., you count back 4,000 years, and you can determine the year of creation, 3973, based on the Word of God. Not on studying what scholars want to do in genealogy, but based on what Peter said right here. And based on what Christ said, I came as a type of, and my ministry will amount to, the 50th year, the proclaiming of liberty in the Jubilee. Now, why not at the end of his ministry? No. He declared it at the beginning of his ministry because that represented the type or the time when he will begin his new ministry in the millennium. Beginning to beginning. Beginning in 27 A.D., beginning in 2027 A.D. 2,000 years later, precisely. Now, does that argue? Does that create a problem with you don't know the day or the hour? No. Because if he cuts it short, it's the day of the Lord that gets cut short. And then, we go back, and the Father and the Son come down with the bride, set up the millennium, and then the waters go out from their throne to cleanse the earth. There will still be people here at that time. It's precise. You can count on the Word of God. I'm not saying 
necessarily that I know the day or the hour that Christ will come for the first resurrection. I'm saying we can know the day and the hour when he will return with his father in the New Jerusalem to begin the millennium. That'll be precisely after 6,000 years. A day is as a thousand years or it ain't. <laughs> you know? It is or it isn't. If it's sort of, if it's approximate, then there's still confusion. Christ told us when the new heavens and new earth would come. 2,000 years precisely after he began his first ministry. 2027 is the year the millennium begins. And a lot of events have to happen before that. Now that sounds crazy to be able to proclaim that, but I think that's what Peter's telling us. I think that's what he's saying. Now, he's saying, I'm, I'm re- what he's saying here is I'm removing the vagueness. I'm removing the guesswork. I'm telling you. Things don't just go on and on and on like people say, and there is no end to this. He's telling you there is an end to this, and this is when it is. When the seven, 6,000 years are about done, we're going to see the day of the Lord. And then we're going to see the new heavens and the new earth. A year later. Day of the Lord's a year. Cut short, and we go back up and come down with the new heavens and new earth precisely 6,000 years later. Now, what should that tell us? Verse 14, Wherefore, beloved, seeing that you look for such things, he's told us when to look, where to look, what to look for, be diligent that you may be found of him in peace, without spot, that's sin, and blameless, that's lack of sin, and to count that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation. We have to have long-suffering and patience, but we have to know how long that is. Peter tells us. It culminates with the day of the Lord and the coming of the new heavens and new earth at the end of 6,000 years. 1,000 years is as a day. Exactly 1,000 years. And the count that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation. He's saying when the salvation will occur... Even as Paul, according to wisdom given to him, has written to you. Well, I read to you from Paul. Hebrews 4. Six six days? Do we begin the Sabbath approximately? No, we begin it at sundown. Exactly six days. We end it at sundown. Exactly the end of the seventh day. God is precise. And the millennium will begin precisely after 6,000 years. As also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things, Paul's talking about the same thing, Peter says, in which are some things hard to be understood. I'll tell you what, I understand this chapter a whole lot better right now than I did this morning early. Which they that are unlearned and unstable rest as they do also the other scriptures to their own destruction. You therefore, beloved, seeing you know these things before, beware lest you also, being led away with the error of the wicked, fall from your own steadfastness. Don't give up. Don't lose hope. Move forward, knowing 
that God's promises are true, they will happen, and they will happen on time. A day is as a thousand years. Cannot be anything but that. God is bound by that statement. It has to happen right on that time precisely. So don't be carried away worrying about this or that or the other thing. Or I know one group uh, of one splinter worldwide says, Christ returns still several hundred years away. No, it's not. It's precisely the time that God says here. 2,000 years. Well, it's 2,000 years after Christ began His ministry, He will begin it again. On time. So understanding this, grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Emmanuel. To Him be glory, both now and forever. Amen. Brethren, please take your hymnal and turn to page 10.